Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Twenty-five-year-old Darla Harper vanishes without explanation from her Arkansas apartment, left behind as her daughter, not yet even two years old. While there doesn't appear to be any signs of a struggle, a smear of blood on the door raises ominous possibilities. Police are faced with tackling an investigation with little evidence and are confounded by unreliable witnesses who make claims which cannot be substantiated. As police try to narrow their focus onto a suspect, only one name keeps being repeated. Barry Wayne Harper, Darla's soon-to-be ex-husband. After an astonishing accusation from Barry's new wife, police, prosecutors, and Darla's family must confront the possibility that the missing woman might be buried somewhere in what was once her own backyard. Could Barry Harper hold the answers to his estranged wife's fate, Or is it possible the young mother was targeted by someone else, perhaps someone she never even knew? This is Trace Evidence, Episode 176, The Disappearance of Darla Harper, Part 2. Welcome to Trace Evidence. I'm your host, Stephen Pacheco. Today, we will conclude our look into the mysterious disappearance of Darla Harper. Before getting back into the case, just a few notes about the show. Trace Evidence is a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders and disappearances. You can follow the show on social media on Twitter at TraceEvPod, Instagram at TraceEvidencePod, or by searching Facebook for Trace Evidence. If you're interested in supporting the show and getting some Trace Evidence merch, there's a Patreon at patreon.com slash traceevidence, or you can donate directly via PayPal. Visit trace-evidence.com for all social media links, donation options, and contact information. You can submit case suggestions through the website or email me directly at traceevidencepod at gmail.com. 25-year-old Darla Harper had her entire life ahead of her. Then one quiet winter night, she mysteriously disappeared, leaving behind a heartbroken family, a scared little girl, and a lot of unanswered questions. This is episode 176, The Disappearance of Darla Harper, Part 2. Darla Melissa Nixon Harper separated from her husband Barry 
and took their young daughter to live with her in an apartment just a few miles from their Hillwood Drive home in Sherwood, Arkansas. As months passed on, Darla balanced being a single mother with working a full-time job and negotiating the terms of her divorce. It was challenging and sometimes could be overwhelming, but Darla was focused on providing the best life she could for her daughter and herself. In the months leading up to her disappearance, the terms of the divorce were being settled and for the most part, there were no major disputes, no anger and shouting. Everything was coming together and soon, both she and Barry would be free to move on with their lives. There were investments and property, but each side had agreed to terms for how their finances would be divvied up. Everything was set to be finalized in April of 1986, but just one month earlier, Darla vanished. Last seen at her apartment, Darla didn't appear to have anyone or anything that she was afraid of. She spent time with her family that day before coming home and chatting with her neighbor and friend. At approximately 9.30 p.m., the friend left, and Darla began her nightly routine, getting Leslie into bed and preparing for an early day of work. Between 11 and 11.30 p.m., Darla's neighbor reported hearing several sounds coming from her apartment, described as sounding like large furniture being moved. She called, but there was no answer. When Darla failed to show up for work the next day, a co-worker arrived and discovered her two-year-old daughter alone in the apartment. There was a smear of blood on the door, but Darla was gone. Her car would later be found in a commuter lot several miles from her home, a commuter lot that Darla never used. There was mud and dirt on the vehicle, twigs and branches sticking out from the rear bumper. Fingerprints were found inside and outside, though it was clear someone had wiped most of them away. Police began searching massive areas around the car and the apartment, believing the young mother may have been taken someplace off the beaten path. Despite multiple searches on land, river, and air, not a trace of Darla was found. At the time, she had a boyfriend, but he cooperated passed a polygraph, and his fingerprints did not match those recovered in the car. Darla's soon-to-be ex-husband, however, was another story. He contributed little to the investigation, refused to allow his daughter to see a therapist or speak with police, outright rejected the possibility of taking a polygraph, and, after remarrying, wanted little to do with the case. His own run-ins with the law, however, would see him appearing before a judge several times over the next few years. Barry's new wife, Yvonne, told police on more than one occasion that she believed Darla had been killed and was buried in the backyard of the home she shared with Barry. In a child custody hearing held in February of 1990, Barry was asked under oath if he knew what happened to his ex-wife. Confronted by the question of whether or not she had in fact been buried in his backyard, Barry replied with only, quote, Why don't you go dig the yard up? End quote. Now, we move into part two of the disappearance of Darla Harper. Following the surprising testimony given by Barry Harper during the custody hearing, a lot of questions started being asked of both the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office as well as the office of the prosecutor. Reporters, as well as Darla's family, wanted to know if investigators were going to follow up on the accusations made by Barry's wife, Yvonne. Asked about this, the sheriff's office issued a statement saying that, at that point, 
They needed to meet with prosecutors in order to determine the legality of conducting a dig on Barry's property at the Hillwood Drive home where Darla had previously lived. Speaking to the Arkansas Democrat, Chief Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Lloyd King stated that his office had been made aware of Yvonne's statements and they were looking into it, saying, quote, We've met with the sheriff's office and are assessing the due information. It's being looked at, end quote. When asked about the status of the case in general, Sheriff's Office spokesperson Sherry Rainey told the Arkansas Gazette that investigators were pursuing multiple leads. Rainey explained that, since the day Darla vanished, they had been receiving tips with some regularity, and those leads were actively being pursued since that time. A week later, in early March of 1990, Sergeant Carl Beadle, the lead investigator on the case, was asked about the potential of digging up Barry's yard. At the time, Beadle explained that they were trying to determine if there was some way of identifying the location of a body without actually having to dig. They were attempting to find something which would give them the legal ability to obtain a warrant for the dig due to the fact that Yvonne's statement by itself might not be enough to satisfy a judge as she was suffering from mental health issues and was seeking psychiatric help at a medical facility. According to Beadle, the crime lab was unaware of any methods for finding a body without opening up the ground. Norman F. Williams, however, a geologist for the state, told the Gazette that while the crime lab felt there was no way of finding a body without digging, he believed there were several acts which could be performed to help narrow down a specific location. Williams explained that investigators could search the yard for areas where the earth had sunken in, as often happens when a grave is dug. He went on to say investigators could drill a series of holes and insert rods, which could show changes in the soil, which might suggest that the earth had been disturbed in that area. Finally, Williams said police could take infrared photographs from the sky, which could also show differences and unnatural changes in the soil. Asked about Yvonne's statements and the possibility that her daughter could be buried in what used to be her own backyard, Darla's mother, Mel, told the Gazette, quote, it could be on track, but I don't know that. I'd like to see it proved or disproved. I never doubted what's happened, but I've wanted so badly to be able to bring her back and give her a proper burial. It's hope and fear. I hope they find her, and I fear they'll find her. End quote. At this point, the Nixon family hadn't said very much publicly in terms of who they thought might be responsible for Darla's disappearance though they had been clear from day one that they believed their daughter had been the victim of a crime. In an interview with the Democrat, Mel was finally asked about Barry and the possibility that he might have been involved. She replied, quote, We're wanting to come to a conclusion, and we're hoping that it can. For Leslie's sake, we have a real fear that it will be Barry, and she'll go through a lot of suffering. On the other hand, if it is him, we need to know and he needs to face the consequences. We've tried, despite a tremendous amount of circumstantial evidence pointing toward him, to believe it wasn't him. I owe it to Darla to find out what happened. End quote. For investigators, it was a problem of evidence. They didn't actually have enough to obtain a warrant to begin digging. On Tuesday, March 6th, Barry was scheduled to be sentenced regarding his own admitted probation violations. In a last act of desperation, Sergeant Beadle met with Barry just minutes before he was set to stand before the judge and receive his sentence. 
Since Barry had stated on the record that police could dig up his lawn, Beetle presented him with paperwork to allow investigators to conduct a dig. Surprisingly, Barry signed the papers, negating the need for a warrant, and moments later stood before the judge, at which time he was sentenced to serve 11 months and 29 days in jail. Investigators moved fast, arranging for the dig to be conducted the next day. At 9 a.m. on the morning of Wednesday, March 7th, Dr. Cheryl Puskarich, a forensic anthropologist working for the Pulaski County Coroner's Office, examined the land and searched for any signs of changes in the soil and foliage, seeking the best place to begin digging. A representative Arkla Gas Company was on site to take readings for methane gas beneath the surface. Methane is released during the decomposition process, and finding an area with a higher than normal methane level might help narrow down the potential location of a body. Weather that morning wasn't good. Heavy rains began falling not long after the survey of the yard had begun, and that would complicate matters for investigators. Rain had the potential of not only making the dig more difficult, but also could throw off the readings being done in the search for methane. Due to the weather, Dr. Puskarich began looking around in a crawl space beneath the home, and it was there that she found a sunken piece of earth covered by a plastic sheet. According to reports of the time, this sunken space was located beneath the home's master bedroom. Dr. Puskarich and Deputy Coroner Mike Holloway began digging in that area not long after the sunken spot was found. Approximately 10 inches beneath the soil, they recovered three plastic garbage bags, all of which were empty, though the material was bagged for evidence anyway. Breaking into an opening, they found a hole, described as being circular and three feet in diameter, lined with the same type of plastic which had laid over top. After three hours of excavating the hole, investigators came upon what they described as an unidentifiable mass of material. This material, found 24 inches beneath the surface, was removed from the hole, and after a visual analysis couldn't determine what exactly it was, the material was bagged and packaged to be sent out to the state crime lab. Coroner Steve Nowocek was unsure of what the material was, though he explained to the Democrat, quote, Whatever it is, whoever put it there went to a lot of trouble to hide it, to disguise it. Somebody was trying to secret something. End quote. The material was described as smelling of some type of chemical, at the time thought to be battery acid. Diggers noted that ash found in the hole suggested fire may have burned in that spot at some point. While no clothing or other identifiable items were recovered, it was noted that a spent shotgun shell was recovered from the same area. Following this discovery, additional digging was conducted around that area, though nothing else was found. As for the remainder of the yard, not much digging happened as the rain began filling in holes and making the soil too loose to negotiate. Unfortunately, the papers Barry had signed allowed investigators to conduct only a continuous search, meaning if they stopped for the day, they couldn't come back and pick it up the following day. According to Beetle, methane probes did detect gas in and around the hole found beneath the crawl space. As for the specific area Yvonne had pointed out, near the old white truck, methane readings were so small that they elected not to dig in that spot. Since the space near the truck had been used for burning garbage, it was believed this was the reason for the slightly increased methane reading. Ultimately, the digging was halted at 2 p.m., five hours after it had begun. 
On Friday, March 9th, two days after the materials had been recovered from the hole, the state crime lab informed investigators that they had not recovered anything related to human remains. Jim Clark, acting director of the crime lab, told the Democrat that the mass of materials recovered had totaled 55 pounds, and analysis had determined that 50 pounds of it had been nothing more than mud. The materials had been run through a mass spectrometer to try and identify everything therein. Clark explained to the Gazette, quote, What we found was about 50 pounds of mud, various sizes of viacin, assorted pieces of gravel, broken glass, a 22-inch piece of cord, part of a mop, a mop string, and some grass. We did not find any bones, hair, teeth, or tissue in that 55-pound lump of material that was brought to us. End quote. There was one small piece of evidence that could not be identified, though. This item was described as being extremely small, three-quarters of an inch long, half an inch wide, and one-eighth of an inch thick. Investigators noted it was approximately the size of a fingernail, and while they couldn't identify it, they did believe it was bone. The question was whether or not it was bone from an animal or perhaps a human. Additional testing was noted as needing approximately two weeks, though based on what little they had found, Sergeant Beadle explained that they were unlikely to dig up Barry's property again. This news was not well received by Darla's parents, who felt police should dig again, and specifically, they should dig beneath the old white truck where Yvonne had initially said Darla's remains would be found. Strangely, on Friday, March 16th, after serving just 10 days of his year sentence, Barry Harper was released from prison. The release was on the conditions that Barry be under the supervision of his parents and that he enroll in a rehab program. Barry would pop up again in the news three months later in June when he called police and stated that he'd been the victim of a drive-by shooting. According to Barry, on Saturday, June 16th, a vehicle pulled up alongside him in North Jefferson County and opened fire with a shotgun, at which time he sustained minor wounds. Sergeant Beadle, however, stated that the incident had actually occurred in Pulaski County and came as the result of a drug deal gone bad. According to Beadle, Barry had been involved in a drug deal in the McAlmont community north of Little Rock. Multiple witnesses ID'd Barry's vehicle as being the victim of the shooting. Beadle argued that Barry had lied about the location and circumstances in order to avoid another probation violation. The following day, a warrant was issued for Barry's arrest citing a probation violation as well as two charges of filing a false police report. On July 3rd, Barry went before Judge Milas Hale, who essentially banned him from Pulaski County. Judge Hale ordered that Barry was not to be in the county except for medical purposes, and even then, he must be accompanied by his mother, who at this point was his legal guardian. Barry's lawyer, Bert Mullis, admitted during the hearing that Barry's shooting had in fact taken place in the McAlmont community in Pulaski County. Judge Hale elected not to punish Barry for the shooting, keeping his probation intact, though he did order that Barry would be subjected to drug testing every two weeks or more frequently if they felt it necessary. Monday, March 4th, 1991, marked five years since Darla had last been seen alive. Frustrated with the lack of progress on the case, Mel spoke to the Democrat and stated that it was her belief that authorities needed to work the case harder 
or it would end up being too late. Mel told reporters that she was angry police were not fingerprinting or questioning people she believed might have knowledge of her daughter's fate. She also stated that Sheriff Carol Gravette seemed to be actively avoiding her, noting that they had spoken only briefly on one instance when she accidentally ran into him in the hallway of a state building. For the first time in nearly a year, there was again discussion regarding the small fragment of bone found during the dig under Barry's house. A lab in Knoxville, Tennessee, had agreed to analyze the evidence and released information saying that they believed this small piece of bone did come from a mammal. However, fire had damaged their ability to fully determine whether it was human or animal, so they suggested that additional digging be conducted to see if any other pieces of bone might be found. At the same time, Mel was wondering why investigators hadn't yet sought to obtain DNA from the bone in hopes of determining whether or not it belonged to Darla. Unfortunately, due to the state of DNA testing at the time, experts noted it was unlikely they'd be able to find an answer from such a small piece of bone. Mel joined in with the lab in Tennessee, arguing that investigators needed to return to Barry's home and conduct additional digging operations. However, the prosecutor's office again stated that they were unsure they possessed enough evidence to obtain a warrant. A new prosecutor had since taken over the office, and it was said that he would need to review all of the information before making a decision. While the Nixons believed Barry might hold the answers to their daughter's disappearance, Sergeant Beadle told the Democrat that they had in fact run Barry's fingerprints, and they didn't match those recovered from Darla's vehicle that night. On Tuesday, March 26th, authorities arrived at Barry Harper's Hillwood Drive home armed with search warrants to dig a second time. Investigators focused on two areas of sunken earth in the backyard, one of which was nearby to the truck. Following a previous court hearing, Barry had been ordered to clean up his property, and as a part of that, the old truck had been removed. Unfortunately, after six hours of digging, Investigators did not discover any additional evidence linking Darla to that property. Asked about this second dig, Mel Nixon told the Democrat, quote, I'm disappointed, but I didn't really expect them to find anything. I just wanted to tie up any loose ends, end quote. A year later, in March of 1992, Sergeant Beadle spoke with the Democrat and noted that they had received a new lead and were following it closely, though he would not specify what the lead was nor how it had come to their attention. At the same time, a three-year-old investigation some 1,400 miles away was raising questions about its potential connection to Darla's disappearance. On Friday, July 21, 1989, Pamela Jane Page mysteriously vanished from her home in Arizona. Pamela, a former resident of Arkansas, was Darla's cousin, and Peoria police were beginning to wonder if her disappearance had been, in part, inspired by details regarding Darla's case. While family has noted that Darla and Pamela were not close, they did interact at family gatherings and had an acquaintance-type friendship. Not long after visiting Arkansas, Pamela vanished, and investigators began wondering if perhaps discussion of Darla's case had inspired someone to make Pamela disappear in a similar way. At the time, Pamela was married and owned a video store with her husband, Robert. Robert came under suspicion after lying to police about the last time he'd seen his wife and going so far as to place her car in a location where he'd later alleged to have found it. 
He also produced a note which he claimed his wife had signed, showing that she was running off with another woman. Though when pressed by detectives, Robert later admitted to having forged his wife's signature. Police conducted searches of the Page family home and even dug up sections of the backyard, though they found no trace of Pamela. At the time, their only person of interest was her husband, Robert, but they didn't possess enough evidence to charge him. Was it possible Robert had learned of Darla's disappearance and decided to do something similar? Unfortunately, Robert passed away years later without having ever been charged. Pamela remains missing to this day. Unsolved Mysteries ran an episode about Pamela's disappearance, though Robert would not agree to an on-camera interview. Asked to also run a segment about Darla's disappearance, producers at Unsolved Mysteries told the family that they didn't feel there was enough information for a segment and that the audience would find it confusing based on what evidence there was. Sadly, six years had passed since Darla Harper was last seen, and her case was growing colder. The case grew quiet with little, if any, movement. Articles seemingly stopped. Interviews were non-existent. Soon, days turned to weeks, weeks to months, and months to years. In March of 1996, ten years after Darla's disappearance, Randy Johnson, the new sheriff of Pulaski County, announced that his department was reopening the case. It was hoped that fresh eyes and new investigative techniques might shed some light on what had become of the missing mother. Sergeant Beadle had since returned to patrol duties. The case now fell into the hands of Major Skip Polk, who told the Pine Bluff commercial that they would be reviewing old leads, examining the file in depth, and perhaps conducting new interviews with people who had previously been questioned by the original investigators. While this new investigation was good news for the Nixon family, the flame quickly burned out, and Darla's case once again fell into the cold case files. March of 2003 marked 17 years since Darla had disappeared, and it seemed police were no closer to finding the answers. Lieutenant David Doty of the Sheriff's Office spoke with the Gazette and stated that they were, once again, looking into the case and hoping that the passage of time might lead to some people speaking up who had previously chosen to remain silent. Doty explained, quote, I know that somewhere out there, somebody has direct knowledge of the whereabouts of Darla Harper. People have relationships, and people talk. When you look at the whole case scenario, and you know that she loved her daughter more than herself, you can't help but fear for the worst. End quote. For the first time, Darla's daughter Leslie took part in this interview. Now, 18 years old, Darla was a pre-med student at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Trying to remember details of the night her mother vanished could be difficult for the woman who noted that she was so young at the time, it's hard to know the difference between what she saw and what she's been told over the years. Asked about her mother, Leslie replied, quote, It's been really hard. At every special occasion, my mom has not been there. On my first day of school, I didn't have my mom with me. But the worst part is not knowing. I just want to know what happened and why. When I was young, I didn't know what to think. I was always told she loved me, but as a child, you always wonder if maybe she just left. But I know that's not the case. End quote. Mel Nixon was also interviewed and told reporters that she believed police had previously spoken with the person responsible and that whoever did this 
had to have been someone Darla knew very well. Lieutenant Doty would go on to explain that investigators were in possession of DNA connected with the case. Doty noted that the DNA was specifically mitochondrial DNA and that they hadn't been able to get it tested by the state lab, which had shut down due to a lack of funding. At the time, Doty hoped to get the FBI involved to utilize their lab. He stated that the DNA was crucial to the furtherance of the investigation, saying, quote, This thing is 17 years old, and I've got volumes and volumes of documentation. If I ended up getting some results back that conflicted with what I've been told, that's definitely something. Of course you'd revisit it. End quote. In November of 2007, 21 years after Darla's disappearance, KARK News NBC produced a featured segment looking into the missing woman's case. During the interviews, Leslie revealed new details about the night her mother vanished. According to her, Darla must have known something was wrong because she instinctively reacted by telling Leslie to go and hide. She explained, quote, She said, go to my room and be very quiet. Three men were coming up the stairs. I was hiding under my bed with the sheets pulled down so I could see out. Then I remember the next morning. Phone call from mom's work asking where she was. Someone knocking at the door. I went down, got a chair to unlock the deadbolt because I couldn't reach it. End quote. Captain Kirk Lane told KARK that there were several people of interest in the case and that there always had been. According to Lane, after more than 20 years, they had still not managed to eliminate who he considered to be the primary suspects at the time. Lane stated that the original investigation had found no signs of forced entry, and it was believed that Darla's abductor was someone she knew. Lane also stated that they were unsure why Leslie had been unharmed, though he speculated that the abductor may have known the child and simply didn't want to hurt her. While they didn't have enough evidence to charge or name anyone as a suspect, Lane wanted to make it clear that it was only a matter of time, saying, quote, I think it's important for those who perpetrated this crime to know this will keep going. Technology is going to get better, and eventually Darla will be found. They've had 21 years of keeping this to themselves, 21 years of ruining a chapter of Leslie's life and Mel Nixon. It's time to step up, in my opinion, and do what's right. End quote. On Friday, February 20th, 2009, Investigators with the sheriff's office arrived with a court order granting them permission to dig up a section of land in the woods just three miles from where Darla vanished. According to the warrant, a man walking his dog in the isolated area came upon a mound of earth which he believed might be a shallow grave. This mound was described as being 40 feet north of a walking trail near Arkansas 107 in Sherwood. Investigators brought equipment in from other states to aid in their search, though the ground-penetrating radar they were using experienced technical issues delaying the start of the dig for several hours. Locating the spot the witness had called in, investigators began digging through the earth slowly, running all dirt through sifters and passing metal detectors over the soil. After eight painstaking hours, investigators had removed approximately two feet of dirt. Digging down deeper, the excavation concluded without any items of significance being found. Lieutenant Cheryl Williams of the Sherwood Police Department explained to the Democrat Gazette, quote, We came out and checked it out 
and found a mound with rocks around and on top of it. It didn't look natural. They dug down into the mound about two feet and hit water. They're all in agreement that there's nothing there. End quote. Williams went on to say that cold case investigators had been going through Darla's file in an effort to update the details and hopefully find new leads. The last update regarding Darla's case came in September of 2010, 24 years after the young mother was last seen. In a segment produced and aired by THV Channel 11, Sergeant Mike Blaine stated that DNA evidence collected during the original investigation was undergoing additional testing in hopes that technology and advances could provide answers. Blaine explained that the DNA evidence was minimal, but it might be enough to help clear some things up in regard to a suspect. Blaine explained, quote, It is my belief that we have the critical piece of DNA to at least make identification. Not so much show direct guilt or fault, but certainly have that person known. I think we are closer than we've ever been at this very moment. End quote. Leslie was also present to speak with reporters, explaining how difficult it is to struggle with old memories without the ability to specify or see things as clearly as she wished she could. Leslie stated, quote, I feel like I saw what happened that night, and I feel like maybe I could remember. I just remember seeing, I can't remember how many, but people in black ski masks coming up the stairs. What did they do to her? Where did they put her? I'd like to know. End quote. Unfortunately, as the case stands today, neither Darla's remains nor the person responsible for her disappearance has ever been found. On Monday, December 2nd, 2013, Barry Harper died at the age of 57 after being involved in a three-vehicle accident. At the time, Barry was a truck driver passing through Texas when his tanker truck was involved in a collision with an 18-wheeler and a school bus. Barry was the only person to have received fatal injuries. Four years later, on Friday, May 26th, 2017, Darla's father, Jerry Don Nixon, passed away at the age of 81. Jerry's obituary noted that he was preceded in death by both of his daughters, Deborah and Darla. For the last 31 years of his life, Jerry never gave up the hope that someday his daughter would be found and her killer or killers would be charged. That is a banner still carried by his family today, with his wife Mel, son Don Jr., and granddaughter Leslie still fighting to find the truth and to bring Darla home. Mel is now 84 years old, Don Jr. is 64, and Leslie is 38, 12 years older than Darla was the night she vanished. Darla Melissa Nixon Harper was last seen on the evening of Tuesday, March 4, 1986, at approximately 9.30 p.m. at her apartment off Jacksonville Cutoff Road. An hour and a half to two hours later, between 11 and 11.30 p.m., Darla's neighbor and a friend heard strange noises coming from the apartment, but received no answer when she called. When last seen, Darla was described as being a white female with brown hair and brown eyes standing 5 feet 4 inches tall and weighing approximately 115 pounds. Darla was last known to be wearing a pullover shirt, jeans, a horseshoe-shaped diamond ring, a diamond cluster ring, and a teardrop-shaped diamond pendant. 
Darla has a burn scar on her left elbow, approximately an inch and a half long, and a small scar on her right cheek. At the time of her disappearance, Darla was 25 years old, and if alive today, she would have turned 61 this past summer. Darla Harper has been missing for 35 years. Despite exhaustive searches in the area near her apartment, the parking lot where her car was found, large tracts of rural land in the northern end of the county, and two digs at the home of her former husband, not a trace of the young mother has ever been found. No shred of clothing, no piece of jewelry, no strand of hair. For her family, it's been an absolute nightmare they can't begin to describe. Every day, waking and wondering if today is the day that Darla might be found. The only hope now is that Darla might be discovered and given a proper burial, and maybe anyone involved might finally face justice. Asked about the case after all these years, Mel Nixon replied, quote, I don't think I've gone to bed one single night without thinking, where is Darla? Where is my daughter? And that's one of the first things I think when I wake up. If the case is solved, it will be like a fresh death all over again. But at least we can get it behind us. We will always grieve for our daughter, but it won't be that unknown factor. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash trace. Life is full of stressors. It doesn't matter who you are, what you have, your life is probably stressful. I know for me, it can be challenging to keep up with the demands of work, home, and family life while also trying to find time to unwind, clear my head, and just take a break from the everyday chaos that life throws at you. You may not be feeling down and out and depressed, or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress is high, your temper is shorter than usual, or even if you're starting to feel strain in any of your relationships, you could probably use the chance to unload, and that's what therapy can be. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Trace Evidence listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com Trace. That's B-E-T-T-E-R. H-E-L-P dot com slash trace. Imagine if every crime could be halted before it happened. Well, while you can't stop every criminal in their tracks, what if you could deter them? That's what Simply Safe's new wireless outdoor security camera does. It's wireless, so it can install anywhere, extending Simply Safe's perimeter of defense from your windows and doors to the far corners of your property. That's right, Simply Safe. The system that U.S. News & World Report named the best home security system of 2021 just got even better. This brand new outdoor security camera is engineered with all the advanced tech to help keep you and your family safe. It has an ultra-wide 140-degree field of view so you can keep watch over your entire yard. 
It has 1080p HD resolution with an 8x zoom. That means you can zoom in and clearly see things, like faces and license plates to capture critical evidence. And it has an easy-to-remove rechargeable battery, so it doesn't need an outlet and can go anywhere on your property. This camera has it all, and it integrates with your SimpliSafe home security system, extending its protection to the outside. Together, it means every door, window, and room are protected, and now your property will be too. I absolutely love my SimpliSafe system and how easy it is to protect my home. Setup took less than 15 minutes, and with SimpliSafe, you can customize the system to fit whatever your needs may be. Now, with this brand new outdoor security camera, not only is my house secure, but I can see all around the yard, even if I'm not home. To learn more about the exciting new SimpliSafe wireless outdoor security camera, visit simplysafe.com slash trace. SimpliSafe is offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash trace. 35 years have passed since that March night in 1986 when Darla Harper mysteriously vanished. A bright woman with her whole life ahead of her disappears in the middle of the night and little is left behind to show where she might be or who may have been involved. Her daughter, less than two at the time, was present in the apartment that night, though the memories of a child are difficult to put together and hard to rely on. A witness comes forward and claims to have witnessed the crime. Some of her statements match up with what investigators have uncovered. And then the witness changes the story, recants, and claims she made it all up. What truth might exist somewhere between the lies and reality has never been uncovered. There aren't a lot of theories about what might have happened to Darla that night. From large gaps in media coverage to the startling lack of evidence found, there's almost a sense of anything could have happened. However, police have been pretty clear that they've had a few suspects since the early days of the investigation, and now, more than three decades later, those same names remain on the list. Unfortunately, none of the physical evidence they do possess, primarily fingerprints and DNA, has ever been used to make a solid link to any particular suspect. In the end, there are essentially two theories about the abduction of Darla Harper. Some believe that whoever was involved had to have been someone Darla knew. Mel has been clear that she believes Darla would have known the suspect very well though what exactly she bases that on, I can't say for certain. Then there's the other side of the coin, the belief that Darla's disappearance had something to do with her then-estranged husband, Barry. Police have never revealed, if indeed they know, what the motive would have been for someone to want to eliminate Darla, but given that she was in the middle of a divorce and her soon-to-be ex-husband was less than helpful, he wound up being looked at extremely closely. So I think it makes the most sense to begin with the possibility that Darla was targeted by someone whose name has never been publicly spoken by police or the family, and then we'll work our way towards Barry. We don't know a great deal about Darla's life at the time of her disappearance. We know she was separated and living in an apartment with Leslie. We know that she'd been seeing a guy, though she'd begun cooling on that relationship. She had a good job working for the IRS in Little Rock. She spent a lot of time visiting her family, and she had a tight group of friends. Unfortunately, 
No one has ever raised anything which would draw suspicion on Darla's family, friends, or co-workers. In fact, her co-workers were heavily involved in searches for her and seemed to be very invested in locating her. Being that she had a government job, that meant investigators from the IRS were also involved in the early stages of those searches. So let's look at what we do know. Based on the statements of Darla's friend and neighbor, Kathy Jumper, police narrowed the time of the crime to have occurred sometime between 9.30 p.m. and midnight, and more likely between 11 p.m. and midnight. Upon visiting Darla that night, Kathy reported she was in good spirits and didn't appear to be worried about anything. The only detail which stood out was that Darla's then-boyfriend had called, and while she gave him the brush off, she lamented to Kathy that he was a nice guy, but she didn't think she wanted to continue things further. She was afraid, though, of breaking up with the man, because he had a history of drug addiction and she worried that ending things might send him spiraling back into that pit. Kathy left the apartment at approximately 9.30 p.m. An hour and a half to two hours later, she noted having heard strange sounds coming from the apartment. In media reports, Kathy described the sounds as being like those you'd hear if someone was moving around heavy furniture. In her own interviews with the press, Mel Nixon included that there were some kind of vocal sounds as well, which she described as moans. Whether or not Kathy actually heard Darla that night rather than unidentified thumps and scratches has never been clarified. Investigators firmly believe that whatever happened that night involved someone, and perhaps more than one person, entering Darla's apartment. Due to the lack of forced entry, it's unknown if Darla opened the door, allowing the suspects inside because she knew him, or if perhaps she was somehow tricked into opening the door. Police have said they believe the crime scene had been cleaned up before the suspect left the apartment. A question I've always had and continue to wonder about is whether or not Darla was alive when she was taken out of the apartment. Obviously, if she'd been killed inside, the murder couldn't have been done with any kind of weapon that would leave a lot of blood behind. It wouldn't have been possible to clean all of that up. So to me, that means Darla was likely the victim of strangulation, or she was subdued and removed from the apartment while unconscious. I think it's worth noting that the way the Seven Oaks apartments are set up, it would be really difficult to pull off a crime like this without someone seeing or hearing something. The buildings hold multiple apartments, upper and lower floors, and for the most part, they would be sharing walls or right on top of one another. The parking lot isn't very large, and the complex is located off Jacksonville Cutoff Road, which runs east to west, wedged between Gibson Road to the west and North Valley Drive to the east. Even today, it's a quiet area, and I struggle to imagine how one person, or possibly as many as three, managed to gain entry to Darla's apartment, subdue and remove her, and drive off without anyone seeing anything. This didn't happen at 4 a.m. on a Sunday. It happened before midnight on a Tuesday. Darla's car was later found parked in a commuter lot approximately 10 miles from her apartment on Crystal Hill Road just off I-40. We know from statements given by a gas station attendant near the lot that Darla's car was not there at 9.30, but was there at midnight. This means that if indeed Darla was attacked between 11 and midnight, the suspect had only a small window of time to attack Darla, get her out of the apartment, and get her car to that parking lot. The drive takes approximately 15 to 20 minutes, so if the attack occurred closer to 11.30, that means the suspect had less than 10 minutes to waste because the car had to get to that lot by midnight. 
When police found the car, they noted several details that seemed out of place. Firstly, there was mud splashed up all over the body of the car, running from the bottom to halfway up. The rear bumper had twigs and broken pieces of foliage sticking out, suggesting that the vehicle had been driven through a rural area at some point. Being that they never say anything about the front bumper, I can't help but wonder if perhaps the branches and twigs came as a result of the vehicle being backed up to some sort of spot off a dirt road, perhaps the shore of a lake or a quarry-type area. It was obvious that whoever left the car in the parking lot had gone to some effort to clean it up, wiping down the interior and exterior. However, they missed some spots. Fingerprints were recovered from the rearview mirror as well as the passenger side door. Spots of blood were found behind the back seat. The vehicle was a hatchback, and so it's possible that Darla had been placed inside via the hatch and her blood was then transferred onto the back of the rear seat, but it's entirely possible that the blood had also been left by the suspect. The only other item mentioned as being found in the car is described as a small length of rope. If you look at a map of the area between Darla's apartment and the commuter lot, there aren't a lot of places one could go to hide a body given that tight window of time. Assuming that Darla was attacked as early as 11 p.m., this would give the suspect only an hour to bring her somewhere and then leave the car at the lot. This would mean, since it's a 20-minute drive to the lot, that wherever Darla was taken would have to be somewhere within 15 or so miles of the lot near I-40. There are definitely some rural locations inside of that distance, including the Camp Robinson Wildlife Area, Lake Maumelle, the Arkansas River, and Rattlesnake Ridge. These rural spots are both west of Little Rock and north of Little Rock. We're talking a lot of hiking areas, wooded areas, and sprawling farmland. These are all places where searches had previously focused their efforts. Now, it seems most likely that Darla's car was driven off-road somewhere, but I think it's worth noting that this doesn't mean that her body had to have been disposed of somewhere inside of the previously defined radius. Assuming that more than one person was involved... It's entirely possible that upon being taken out of the apartment, Darla was put in another vehicle before her own car was dumped in the commuter lot. Let's face it, in order to have pulled off this crime, the suspect would have needed a way to leave the area, go home, and dispose of Darla's body, and it's entirely possible that a vehicle was left somewhere waiting. I think it's most likely that there was more than one vehicle involved. One to drive to an area near the apartment for the initial crime, Darla's own car, and then perhaps another vehicle left waiting at the commuter lot or nearby. The number three has come up a lot in terms of potential suspects in this case. I've always imagined if three people were involved and this was planned out in advance, one person would drive Darla's car, the other two would ride in a different vehicle. Another vehicle would be at or near the parking lot, so once the suspect cleaned up the car, he could simply walk a short distance and drive off to meet with the other suspects in the crime. It never really made a lot of sense to me that Darla's car was taken at all, though. Why run the risk of leaving behind evidence, such as those fingerprints, when you could have just left her car at the apartment and taken your own vehicle? It's one of those areas of this case that continues to bother me. If this was planned out well enough to have disposed of the car before midnight, wouldn't it have been easier to just not touch her car at all? Judging from the fact that fingerprints were found on both the rearview mirror and passenger side door, this suggests to me that whoever was driving Darla's car adjusted her mirror and there was either someone riding in the passenger seat 
or the fingerprint was left when opening that door to remove something from the car or perhaps during the cleanup. Judging from the blood behind the rear seat, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me that Darla would have been in the passenger seat. I also find it odd that a short length of rope was left in the vehicle. If that had been used to tie up Darla, why would it have come off and been left behind? I suppose it's possible that it was just excess. So there's two ways I see it. Darla was removed from her apartment and disposed of somewhere within a 15-mile radius of the parking lot, or Darla was transferred into another vehicle. If the latter is the case, then Darla could have been taken anywhere. It might explain why those massive searches near the lot, near her apartment, along the river, and in Camp Robinson never turned up anything. At the same time, that's a lot of land to cover, and assuming the suspect wasn't a complete idiot, he may have had a place to dispose of Darla where she wasn't likely to be found, at least not easily. Maybe in a body of water, perhaps in a gravel pit. I do also think it's worth noting that there are old abandoned mines in the Little Rock area. Someone who knew that area well and had some experience in the more rural locations surely would have known about a place where such a transaction could take place without being detected. I think at this point it becomes a question of motive. What reason would anyone have to want to harm or eliminate Darla? Based on what we know about her life, at least in terms of unnamed suspects, there doesn't seem to be much of a reason. Darla didn't have a reputation that would suggest she had a long list of enemies or people who were out to harm her. She hadn't lived in the apartment that long at the time she disappeared, and according to neighbors, they don't remember seeing a lot of people coming to visit, and there are no reports of fights or shouting at any time during her time living there. So you have to wonder, did someone have a motive we're unaware of, or is there a random aspect to this crime? Given that there would have to be some planning put into this, more than one person, more than one vehicle, a spot to dispose of the body, where to leave the car. It certainly doesn't strike me that this is just some random crime committed for little or no reason. Someone, or multiple people, went through the trouble of planning this out. The only person beside Barry who's ever been brought up is Darla's then-boyfriend. However, according to police, he fully cooperated, took a polygraph, and gave them no reason to believe he was involved. His fingerprints didn't match either. So, then you have to look at anyone else who may have targeted Darla for one reason or another. A jealous friend, a stalker, someone who simply saw her at the apartment and decided to plan this all out. I do think that you're probably looking at someone more professional. This is unlikely to have been the work of a random group of teenagers or career criminals who make a lot of mistakes and have been in and out of prison. These people cleaned up and left very little behind. They tried to wipe down the car. They obviously had things moving on a clock, and they knew when would be a good time to go to the apartment. I can't help but wonder if drugs have some connection to this case. Barry had an extensive drug problem. It was part of the reason for the divorce, and he'd later be arrested multiple times in connection to drugs. Darla had met her boyfriend while visiting Barry at rehab, so it wouldn't be difficult to imagine he had some connections as well. There's always been a part of me that's wondered if Darla was targeted not because of anything to do with her, but as a message to someone else. Maybe someone owed money, maybe someone had been involved in some drug deals that had gone bad, and Darla was the one link. Pure speculation on my part, but again, this seems like a crime with some level of sophistication to it, or at least one with a suspect who has some experience. 
The one detail that sticks out, the one curiosity that makes a little sense to me, is Leslie. Why was she left behind unharmed? Why run the risk that she might have seen enough to give police something to go on? Why go through the trouble of ensuring that Darla is eliminated, but the child isn't? This is a question that even Leslie herself has asked, noting that whoever was involved knew she was in that apartment. For the most part, the thoughts about this aspect have gone one of two ways. Either the suspect didn't want to harm the child for his own reasons, or the suspect had some connection, some kind of a relationship with Leslie, which meant while her mother was a target, she was not to be harmed. This moves us into the second theory as surely one person, who may have had reason to want Darla gone, but would also not have wanted Leslie harmed, is her father, Barry Harper. Darla and Barry's marriage had started out good. The two were in love and everything seemed to be going along fine, until Barry's drinking and later drug use led to abuse, both physical and verbal. While Darla acknowledged that she loved Barry, she also knew she had to get out of the situation, if not for her own safety, then for that of the couple's newborn daughter. So she left, filed for divorce, got a new apartment, and began taking steps to move on with her life. While we don't have a ton of detail about it, it seems that Darla and Barry didn't maintain much contact during the period when they were estranged, just enough to figure out visitation and time to spend with Leslie. Now, I know in a case like this, the argument is always that the husband did it, and I can't necessarily disagree with the statistics on that in all cases. However, Usually there's some kind of a motive involved, something that's very clear. I think maybe if Barry was involved in this crime, the motive might be hidden beneath the surface. According to court documents, the divorce was moving along. Lawyers on both sides had worked out a split of finances and properties that Barry and Darla agreed with. It didn't seem like things were full of acrimony, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were happy. The couple were set to split $58,000 from the sale of stock and securities, and Barry had agreed to pay $224 a month in child support. While everything suggests that this agreement was worked out between both sides, I think it's also possible that Barry wasn't happy about it. Your lawyer is going to advise you to be quiet, calm, and respectful, but he's also going to tell you that you need to be willing to let go of some things in order for it to work out. Had the divorce been an angry one, who knows if Darla might have been in a position to receive a larger share of that $58,000 plus child support and perhaps additional payments and alimony. Being that Barry had developed a bad addiction at the time, I doubt he was looking forward to losing out on that money. But there was a larger sum of money up for grabs as well. At the time of Darla's disappearance, Barry held a large insurance policy on her totaling $126,000. In the end, Darla's lawyer fought hard in the divorce and ultimately arranged it so that Darla's split of the money was held in escrow for Leslie, and that $126,000 was added to it. So, somewhere around $160,000 in total, which in today's money would be approximately $399,000. That's no paltry sum. So you have to look at the money as potential motive. It's one of the oldest motives in the world. It was entirely possible, had things gone differently in the courtroom, that Barry could have ended up with all of the money in the divorce since Darla was missing, as well as the payout of her life insurance once she was legally declared dead. However, even if things hadn't gone that way, 
Barry still could have been subject to accessing some of the money put into escrow for Leslie if he maintained custody. Unfortunately for Barry, his drug problems and issues with the law saw to it that he lost custody of his daughter, and all of the money was locked away for her to access upon reaching adulthood. However, at the time, in March of 1986 when Darla vanished, it's unlikely Barry could have foreseen the way things would go. Not to mention, if indeed his drug problem was raging at the time, he probably wasn't thinking clearly. Whether he needed the money for his own reasons, or to support his addiction, or because he owed money, we can't say for sure. But that money could 100% be the reason that Darla disappeared a month before the divorce was finalized. If she had disappeared after it, it all would have been for nothing, as Barry wouldn't have been in a position to obtain anything. I think, given the way things went in this case, it's easy to be dismissive of the money, but it absolutely could have gone a whole lot differently. Barry wouldn't take a polygraph, though I'm not one to hold that against him. I've never been a big supporter of polygraphs, and I likely wouldn't take one regardless of knowing I was innocent of a crime. However, he didn't help out at all. Barry didn't participate in searches. He didn't offer reward money. He didn't do interviews pleading with the community for someone to come forward. He just walked out of it and didn't really want to be involved. He remarried to a woman that he had been seeing while still married to Darla, moved on with his life, and for the most part, wanted nothing to do with the police. When asked where he was the night Darla disappeared, Barry told police he was driving around with a friend and then went home. Police weren't able to verify that he was actually home until 4 a.m., so his alibi doesn't exactly have concrete support. It's also worth noting that his home on Hillwood Drive was just four miles southwest of Darla's apartment, and depending on the route taken, is along the way to where her car was found in the commuter lot. I also think it's worth noting that if you drove from Darla's apartment to the commuter lot, then to Barry's house, the trip in driving time would take only 36 minutes. It's almost a big circle when you lay it out on a map. If it was done differently, say, from the apartment to Barry's house, then to the commuter lot, you're only talking 23 minutes. Given that the window of time we know of is between 11 and midnight, on the short end you'd have 24 minutes and on the long 37 with which to drive elsewhere and dispose of Darla. So while everything seems to point towards Barry as being the most likely suspect, there are some details that don't fit. Police could never find physical evidence linking Barry to Darla's disappearance. The fingerprints recovered from her car didn't match. No one saw him out that night in the middle of the woods, at her apartment, driving her car, or near the commuter lot. While Leslie's memories of that evening aren't easy to depend on, given her age and the trauma of the circumstances, it seems unlikely that she could recall the possibility of three men in ski masks but not the sound of her own father's voice or perhaps his face beneath a mask. Of course, simply because Barry could have been involved doesn't mean he had to have actually participated in the crime itself. Running in the circles he was, Barry more than likely would have known a few people willing to do some heinous things for quick money. It's not impossible that he could have hired someone, or more than one person, to eliminate his soon-to-be ex-wife. The one major issue I have with the possibility that multiple people could have been involved, including Barry, is that over the last 35 years, not one person has come forward and said anything about it. No one's been arrested and tried to bargain with information on this case. 
No one's been identified as the owner of the fingerprints, and as far as we know, there's been no DNA matches. You know the old saying, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Well, Barry's been gone for nearly eight years now, and no one has submitted an anonymous tip or called in to point the finger at him. Of course, I imagine, it's entirely possible that anyone involved in this crime is also dead, and maybe died within a few months or years of Darla's disappearance. If they are still out there, it seems odd they've never been fingerprinted in the years before or since. Anyone who would do something like this surely doesn't seem like the type who avoids getting into trouble, and eventually the law will catch up with you. So was it, Barry? Is this another case where the husband did it, but police were never able to get what they needed to make an arrest? That's certainly possible. It seems to be in line with what the family believe, or at least what Darla's brother Don Jr. thinks. In March of 2013, a local Arkansas news station posted about Darla's case on Facebook. Don Jr. responded with only one sentence. Quote, There's no doubt in my mind her husband killed her and got away with it, at least in this lifetime. End quote. While there isn't a lot of evidence to weigh, following Occam's razor in which the simplest solution is often the most likely, Barry would surely fit into that category. But what do you think? Is it Barry? Could it have been someone else? Could he have hired people to have done this? Or could it be someone police have never looked at before? 35 years ago, a bright, talented young mother with her whole life ahead of her vanished under extremely mysterious and perplexing circumstances. For more than three decades, her family has fought to find the truth, to find Darla to give her a proper burial, and to see those responsible held accountable. Darla has been gone now for a decade longer than she was alive. Her daughter met every milestone in her life without being able to share it with her. Graduation, a career, marriage, family. Darla's disappearance didn't only rob her of her life, it robbed those who loved her of all of the beautiful moments they might have shared had she gone on to live a full life. There's no amount of regret that can repair a shattered family, but maybe there's enough to help move it forward. If indeed Barry was involved, he's evaded any earthly punishment he may have received, but there is the chance that others are still out there. Even if not to admit their part in this, it would take no more than an email, a phone call, a text message to provide Darla's family with the whereabouts of her remains. They might not receive justice, but maybe they would find some comfort in being able to bury her properly beside her father and sister. Unfortunately, unless there's a breakthrough with the DNA, they get a match on the prince, new evidence is found, or Darla herself is located. For now, the disappearance of Darla Harper will remain open, unsolved, and very cold. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you're looking for more information about the disappearance of Darla Harper, 
there are many archived news articles discussing her case. The Arkansas Democrat and Arkansas Gazette have done the most extensive coverage. If you have any information about the disappearance of Darla Harper, please contact the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office at 501-340-6600. Darla's case number is 86-03487. What do you believe happened? Tweet me at TraceEvPod, message me on Instagram at TraceEvidencePod, email me at TraceEvidencePod at gmail.com, or comment in the Facebook group. Trace Evidence would not be possible without support from amazing listeners like you. And now I'd like to take a moment to thank our fantastic Patreon producers, Alicia Lorraine, Anne Bertram, Brittany Bivens, Christine Greco, Dave Allen, Denise Dingsdale, Diane Dyson, Eamon Brady, Eric Sumter, Heather Louise, James, Jennifer Winkler, Jill Sense, Joni Berkwitz, Kara Moreland, Lars Jensen Fangle, Leslie B., Marla Wright, Melissa Brookeisen, Nick Mohar Schurz, Robert Jansen, Sarah Levinen, Travis Skepko, Stephanie Joyner, Stephanie Eve, Taylor, Tom Archer, Tom Radford, and Tracy Woods. Your contributions to Trace Evidence are invaluable, and your support of the show is both appreciated and extremely humbling. If you're interested in supporting Trace Evidence and gaining access to exclusive merch and ad-free episodes, please visit patreon.com slash traceevidence or go to trace-evidence.com and click on the support option. That's going to conclude this week's episode. If you haven't already, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Five stars would be greatly appreciated, but it's up to you. Share these episodes, spread the word, and maybe together we can help bring justice to those who have been deprived of it. That concludes this week's episode, part two of the disappearance of Darla Harper. I want to thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll join me next week for another unsolved case on the next episode of Trace Evidence. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.